The following message is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. Friends, please turn to the book of 2 Kings and chapter 5 this time, chapter 5 of 2 Kings. And if you'd also turn, please, to Luke chapter 4. Two Kings five and Luke four. Let's have a word of prayer. Let's remember uh, the words of Jesus to the disciples that he met on the Emmaus road. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Open our minds, Lord, we pray, that we might so understand the scriptures to which we turn this morning that we will delight in the goodness and greatness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, we'll begin with Luke chapter 4, and I'd like to read from verse 16. Luke 4, 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days, in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. 
when they heard these things. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus refers here to the story that we're going to listen to in just a moment, there in verse 27. And his reference uh, to this particular event provoked the folk in the Nazareth synagogue to such rage that they would have, if they could have, hurled him off the cliff. It strikes us as something of an overreaction, doesn't it? What was it about Jesus' words that could provoke such antagonism? There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. It was probably in part the suggestion that the people of Jesus' hometown were like the people of Israel in the days of Elijah and Elisha, when Ahab and his sons reigned. Oh, back in those days, there were a few in Israel who sought God and wonderfully received help from him in their troubles. We see such wonderful stories in 2 Kings chapter 4. But the king of Israel... And so many in Israel, we saw last night, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. And it was so deeply confronting for Jesus to suggest that his own contemporaries were like that. So the mob drove him out of town and came close to throwing him off a cliff which I think kind of proved his point, don't you think? (laughs) More than that, there was his reference to Naaman, the Syrian. Even Naaman, the Syrian, could teach you people a thing or two about the ways of God. That must have hurt. Well, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5 and listen to the story about Naaman and see what impact this story has on us. Uh, You'll notice that we've passed over chapters 2 to 4, which I'm disappointed about, but you'll be pleased about. We're not not trying to do the whole book in these three sessions. Chapter 2, you remember where the mantle of Elijah is spectacularly passed on to his successor, Elisha. Chapter 3, where Ahaziah's brother Jehoram becomes uh, king uh, in Samaria and uh, shows his colours. And chapter 4 where Elisha, Elisha, my God saves, encounters various desperate individuals in Israel who are delivered from their troubles by remarkable acts of God. And, uh, of course, a proper exposition of two kings would have taken us carefully through those chapters. But this is an improper exposition (laughs) of two kings, and so we're going to go straight to chapter 5. And as you turn to chapter 5, it takes the reader of two kings by surprise in a number of ways. And I want us to enter into the chapter just just very carefully for a few moments and notice a number of things. The first thing we notice is a sudden change of setting. In chapter 5, verse 1, we find ourselves 
in a foreign land. Uh, We find ourselves at a centre of political and military power. And there we're about to meet important, powerful people. But more than that, the foreign land is Syria. And the centre of power is the city of Damascus. And the striking thing about Syria, or Aram as it's, um, the NIV has it, don't, don't be confused by those two things, it doesn't really matter too much, but <coughs> Syria or Aram, whatever name you give to this nation, had been a serious and constant enemy of Israel. Just a few years earlier, in fact, King Ahab had been killed in a battle with the king of Syria. That's the last chapter of 1 Kings. Therefore, as we begin to read 2 Kings chapter 5, a sense of some trepidation would be appropriate. We're in enemy territory. We're in Damascus. But all is not as it seems. Our story begins with 1, a great man in serious trouble. Verse 1. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with or literally before his master and in high favour. The king of Syria is elsewhere given the title Ben-Hadad, son of Hadad. Hadad uh, means one who smashes. Um, It was a name for Baal. And so we're not only in enemy territory, this is Baal land. And our attention is being drawn to one important figure in Ben-Hadad's kingdom who went by the name of Naaman. Now, in all probability, Naaman would have been the commander of Ben-Hadad's army in the battle where King Ahab was killed. Indeed, there's an intriguing uh, Jewish tradition. There's no particular basis for it, but but it's intriguing. Oh, no, solid basis for it. Uh, It's intriguing that it was, in fact, Naaman who drew that bow and fired that arrow that, in fact, led to King Ahab's death. That's probably... But it's quite likely that he was the commander of the army, whether he was involved in that particular way or not. So Naaman comes into this story at this point with considerable baggage. The commander of the army of the king of Syria. And we're told he was a great man literally before his master and in high favour. Mind you, we readers are not expected to share Ben-Hadad's high regard for Naaman. It's a little bit like telling us that Himmler was in high esteem with Hitler. It's that kind, of, that, that, that kind of reference. However, astonishingly, the writer tells us, we're reading carefully here, this is, this is just verse 1, so we, what time's lunch? <laughs> verse 1. But look at what the writer tells us in verse 1. Naaman was so well regarded by his king... Because by him, Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now that's astonishing. If that doesn't make you choke on your cornflakes as you're reading that in the morning, you're not paying attention. (laughs) This is not something that Naaman uh, or Ben-Hadad understood, of course, but the Bible writer is making sure that we readers understand it. Naaman's victory on the battlefield... And this seems to be a reference to the most recent battle against Israel when Ahab was killed. That victory came about because of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
Now, there's a whole story there, and it's told in some detail in 1 Kings, but the truth is that Naaman, unknowingly, unknowingly, of course, but he owed his high standing before his king to the Lord. Furthermore, uh, still in verse 1, Naaman was a mighty man of valour. He was a hero of the nation. He, perhaps one of the many medals clinking on his chest, celebrated his taking out King Ahab of Israel. But just when we might be growing a little impatient with this unusually detailed description of a foreign pagan enemy general, we're told at the end of verse 1, we got to the end of verse 1, that's good, isn't it? But he was a leper. But he was a leper. Not what is called leprosy today, but a a condition that we know was well known in Israel. According to God's law in the book of Leviticus, a leper was unclean, untouchable, excluded. We don't know how seriously Naaman suffered from leprosy, but the last word of verse 1 brings, you might feel as you're reading this, a little bit of balance. This pagan enemy of Israel, no matter how well regarded he was by his master, no matter how famous he was, no matter what pedestal the people had him on, he was a leper. And presumably that was the Lord's doing too, we might think. And as readers of this, we might think that with a little bit of satisfaction. So a great man in serious trouble. Two, a little girl with an unlikely suggestion. Verses two through four. Verse two. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. See, at this time, um, there was not open warfare between Syria and Israel, but there were still incursions over the border with the seizure of property and people. We're not told this little girl's name. She wasn't important enough for that. She was one of the many victims of the power wielded by the great man. Taken captive by Naaman's forces, she found herself a domestic slave in Naaman's household. Literally, the text says she was before Naaman's wife. Just as Naaman was before his king, the contrast is rather striking. The writer doesn't dwell on the trauma this little girl must have suffered, but there's clearly a backstory here, isn't there? She must have been forcefully, no doubt violently, taken from her home and family to a foreign city, with very little hope of ever seeing her parents again. But the little girl comes into our story because of something she said one day to Naaman's wife. Her words are going to change the great man's life for good. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, listen to this, would that my Lord were with, literally it's before, the prophet who is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. Notice the gentle kindness of this kid. She respectfully calls Naaman, my Lord. She cares about his suffering. That's remarkable enough. However, she also has a rather clear understanding, as children often do, of truth. 
of authentic hierarchies in this world. If only the great Naaman would come before the prophet in Samaria, just as she was before her mistress and Naaman was before King Ben-Hadad, then he could be cured of his leprosy. Well, children say all sorts of things, don't they? But somehow this little girl and what she said reached the ears of King Ben-Hadad. Verse 4 says, this is a little bit more literal than the translations have it, but so someone went and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. The original doesn't say that it was Naaman who conveyed this information to King Ben-Hadad. I sort of suspect it wasn't. We have no reason to think that the mighty King Naaman would take the words of this little slave girl from the land of Israel seriously. It's not even clear that Naaman's wife told him uh, of the girl's preposterous suggestion. However, someone heard it or heard of it and informed the king. Three, high level confusion, verses five through seven. Now, why the king of Syria would take any notice of a report of a strange chatter from a little slave girl, that's a bit of a mystery. It might be a sign of how desperate he was to help his, his highly valued man. Maybe, maybe he'd heard rumours of an unusual power at work in Israel, but for whatever reason, the king said to Naaman, verse 5, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. <laughs> like many in political office, he could only think in terms of political power. Surely if there was any power in Israel to cure his commander, it would be under the control of Israel's king, wouldn't it? The government has to get this. The government must have this. Now this would be King Jehoram, Ahaziah's brother, Ahab's son. It's not obvious this is going to work out well. Now whatever Naaman thought of this idea, of course he obeyed his king. So verse 5 goes on. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Now, I'm told by the commentaries that that's about 340 kilograms of silver, 90 kilograms of gold, as well as the luxury garments. Uh, This was quite something. No expense, you see, was to be spared for the king's favourite. Like many powerful people, King Ben-Hadad and Naaman thought that whatever they wanted, it could be bought. I want you to try and picture the scene if you can. The, The horses, the chariots laden with their wealth, making a pompous entry into Israel's royal city. There must have been some curiosity on the streets about this ostentatious arrival in Samaria of the Syrian commander, but without his soldiers? This man who had done so much damage to Israel over the years, what did he want now? Our attention is drawn to the delivery of the letter from King Ben-Hadad to King Jehoram. And now we hear what the Syrian king had written. You see verse 6, and he, this is Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you, Naaman, 
my servant, that you may cure him of, my, of, of leprosy, of his leprosy. King Jehoram was not amused. Verse 7, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. To his credit, and I don't want to give him very much credit at all, but Jehoram did seem to know, at least when the chips were down, that he was not God. He could no more cure a man of leprosy than raise a man from the dead. Ben-Hadad must be playing a game. Uh, He's looking for a false flag. That's the way we say it, isn't it? Jehoram was afraid. He was confused. He was at a loss to know what to do. The scene, it would be amusing if it wasn't so serious. Both of these kings were fools. One thought that divine power was at the disposal of royal power at a price. The other seems willfully ignorant of the power that was at work in his kingdom. Had he heard nothing of the incidents recorded in the previous chapter of this book, in 2 Kings chapter 4? He did, it, it does seem that he knew less, really. He knew less about what was going on in his kingdom than a little slave girl in Damascus. So we come to four. I'm not telling you how many there are either, once again. Higher level clarity. This is verses 8 through to 14, higher level clarity. Here's the thing that few powerful people ever understand. Powerful people. There is a higher authority than the highest human authority. You see, the little girl understood that. But the king didn't. Everyone needs to understand it. So we read verse 8. When Elisha the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. A note of rebuke. Why have you torn your clothes? And authority. Let him now come to me. But you notice that Elisha did not say that I may cure him of his leprosy. No, that wasn't the real issue. There was something much more important than that, rather that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now the importance of that will soon be clear, but that's what the little girl knew. Back in verse 3. So verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. It must have been quite a sight. The Syrian commander with his noisy, showy, pretentious retinue, um, someone's described it as the emblems of his immense importance, and you try and uh, see them crammed into the narrow street outside Elisha's modest dwelling. Nothing like this had ever been seen in this neighbourhood. The great man himself dismounted, and stood waiting at the door of the house. Now, Elisha was not inclined to make much of a fuss of this grand visitor. 
he sent a servant to the door, verse 10, with a strange curt message. Verse 10, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and a promise and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Now, that's not quite what Naaman was expecting. So verse 11, Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. See, Naaman knew how important people ought to be treated. To me, those words have an emphasis in the original. I thought he would at least come to the door. I thought he would put in some effort. I thought he would... I've come all this way and all I get is a servant telling me to wash in that excuse of a river called the Jordan. See, a man like Naaman doesn't respond well to what he perceives as insults. He was angry, verse 11. He went off in a rage, verse 12. He felt mocked. He'd not been shown the respect that was due to him. And anyway... What has that muddy trickle of the Jordan got over the pure, cool waters in in, in Damascus? I'm not putting up with this nonsense. Pride makes a fool of many great ones. And all the more so if it is pride before the word of God. The simple, clear, Direct word of God always seems unreasonable to proud people who have too high an opinion of themselves. Wash and be clean. Believe and be saved. Repent and be forgiven. The imperative could not be more plain and simple. The promise could not be more absolutely marvellous. And those who do not receive what is promised have no one to blame but themselves. I'm not putting up with this nonsense. And once again in this lovely story, I think it's a lovely story, wisdom comes from the less important people. See verse 13, but his servants came near to him and said, my father... It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? That's how the ESV puts it. There is some ambiguity. The NIV takes it more like, uh, won't you give this a chance? What have you got to lose? But either way, the servants urged Naaman to get down off his high horse. And I wonder what was going through Naaman's mind. He could, and I think he was inclined to, return to Damascus in a huff. But that might be embarrassing. His servants were all urging him to at least give this a chance. And so reluctantly, I think, under the pressure from his servants, Naaman made his way to the Jordan River. And you see verse 14, he went down and dipped himself 
seven times in the Jordan. He didn't wash, he dipped. No, don't tell me he was an Anglican, that won't, that won't work. <laughs> there was no enthusiasm in it. He did it as lightly as he could, but he did what he did seven times, and it was in the Jordan. And so our writer adds in verse 14, do you notice this? Perhaps a little generously, I think, according to the word of the man of God. We might call this faith like a grain of mustard seed. And astonishingly, keep reading verse 14, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. The great man became like the little girl back in Damascus in more ways than one. And so finally we see a great man made new. Verse 15 through to 19. See, Naaman could have now returned to Damascus directly, but he didn't. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. The language, the verbs, the, the, the vocabulary and the, the phraseology, it's the language of repentance. He returned. No longer resentful and arrogant and defiant, but humble. Humbled and thankful. A man made new. Listen to him, verse 15. And he said, behold, listen to this. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, is that not astonishing? From the commander of the army of the king of Syria, the only God in all the earth is the God in Israel. There were many in Israel. Certainly the kings in Israel who rejected what Naaman now knew. Remember chapter 1? Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're behaving the way you are? Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And Naaman continued, the end of verse 15, so accept now a present from your servant. No longer a price, literally a blessing in humble gratitude to the man of God from, see how he describes himself? Your servant. Verse 16, but Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Literally, I will not take. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Elisha would not compromise the generosity of God's gift to Naaman by taking anything from him. A little like the much later apostle, Elisha insisted on expressing the free grace of God in his own behaviour. He wasn't going to turn God's kindness into an opportunity for him to take. No way. And Naaman, it seems, accepted Elisha's refusal with good grace. But he had two further requests. 
each arising from the changed man that he now was. They're, they're intriguing. I don't fully understand them, but let's have a look at them. Uh, two requests he had. Okay, this is the counselling session. After the man's converted, here's the, here's the man, and, and these two questions come up. How are you going to handle these ones? Naaman said, if not, okay, but please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Now, I, I can't work that one out. My best guess is that Naaman was struggling to follow through on his newfound faith. The only God in all the earth is the God in Israel. He wanted to stand on Israelite soil, so to speak, as he worshipped the one God in all the earth. He, I don't think he'd worked everything out theologically, so don't have an argument with him at this stage. It's too early. <laughs> but he was serious. He was serious about his newfound faith. But the second thing is particularly intriguing. This is the second thing on his mind, and he's thinking about this already. Verse 18, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. It's not going to be a simple thing for a high official in pagan Damascus to live out the truth that he now knew. The only God in all the earth is the God in Israel. Naaman's responsibilities, he, he, he could see this already, were going to bring him into situations that he would not now choose if it was up to him. And for instance, he says this example, when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there. I, I, I do like this one, I hope you do. Uh, our writer is once again having fun with names, a bit like Beelzebub yesterday. Um, it was probably the house of Raman, the thunderer. Uh, it's another, uh, another, uh, another Baal title uh, among the Syrians. But Rimmon, you know what Rimmon means? The pomegranate. And to hear Naaman call the god of his people, not the thunderer, but the pomegranate, I think it's a marvellous expression of his conversion to the one God of all the earth, don't you think? But back to his problem. Naaman will, from time to time, be required to accompany his king into the pagan temple and perhaps even to bow down there. What to do? And we need to feel the weight of Naaman's dilemma. It's no small thing. And particularly if we've been paying attention to this history, because the great sin that provoked the God of Israel to anger in Israel had been the king and his people worshipping, bowing down, that is, to Baal. That's the note on which one king's ended, we've seen. Would a situation such as that envisaged by Naaman now provoke the wrath of the God he'd come to acknowledge on him? And therefore he asked, notice, notice this, twice he asked, that the Lord would pardon, would forgive him. That is, that the Lord would not hold such actions against him. This is utterly extraordinary. A foreigner standing before the man of God, asking for forgiveness from the God of Israel concerning his life in a pagan land and culture because... The God in Israel is the one God in all the earth. Forgiveness 
if he should inadvertently do what the people in Israel were deliberately doing, led by their kings. Elisha's reply is brief, but I think profoundly pastoral. He said to him, go in peace. Go in peace. He didn't issue Naaman with a set of rules to shield him from being contaminated by his pagan environment. He entrusted him to God's keeping. Go in peace. Naaman need not be anxious. Go in peace. The one God of all the earth can cope with the complexities of life in a pagan world. Go in peace. Well, as I think you probably know, Naaman had not gone far before this story takes another twist, but that's beyond our scope this morning because this is not a proper exposition, you remember. (laughs) But let's close. And as we close, I'd like us to just pause and see if we can feel the weight of what I like to describe as the gospel power of this story. See, when Jesus pointed the folk in the Nazareth synagogue to this story, he was insisting that it was relevant at that moment because what was happening in their midst had happened before. However inadequately, Naaman had sought the prophet in Israel who many in Israel refused to heed. However, reluctantly, Naaman obeyed the word of the prophet and he was cleansed, while many lepers in Israel were not. You see, in Jesus Christ, something greater than Elisha is here. There is but one God in all the earth. The God of Elisha. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he is the one to whom unclean people need to come for cleansing. A cleansing deeper and more wonderful than Naaman's. It's the blood of Jesus it is the blood of Jesus his son that cleanses us from all sin. See it's possible still to have a prophet in your midst to have the word of God right in front of you to have the power of God to cleanse and restore near to you and to be so self-absorbed that you refuse to listen and you turn away, too proud. We notice that even Naaman's pride almost got the better of him, as did the pride of those in the Nazareth synagogue. Wash and be clean. Believe and be saved. Repent and be forgiven. Those who do not receive what is promised have no one to blame but themselves 
and the foolishness is staggering. Please pray with me. Our God and Heavenly Father, these words strike me from two angles in a way. The first is this gracious word that I must hear. That I must hear again and again. I must hear daily. Believe and be saved. Repent and be forgiven. Keep me from the pride that will not listen to this simple, magnificent message. But then, Heavenly Father, as we look at our broken world, you have given us this simple message. We do pray that you'd help us to faithfully impart it And we pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would break down the pride of the peoples of our world as they hear the call to wash and be clean, repent and be forgiven, that that message might be heard and heeded, that like Naaman so long ago, many, many, would experience the power of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Truth For Life. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life where the learning is for living.